You're listening. You're listening. You're listening. You're listening to Music Biz 101 and more. If you want to learn about the music industry and you don't know where to go, tune in to WP88.7. Music Biz 101 and more on Brave New Radio. I am your professor, Dr. No, I'm not a doctor, Professor David Kirk Philp, usually here along with Dr. Esteban Marconi, who is not here today. He is on assignment. However, we have a guest who will be here in just a moment, Sarah Barnett, GM of Brooklyn Bowl in Nashville, Tennessee, Music City. Before we do that, a quick thanks ought to be given as I stumble across my words. I'm usually not doing the show alone, so really scared to death. Okay, thanks to the folks at Van Dyne Bruno, Inc. and White Hat Management with artists like Dave Matthews, Three Doors Down, St. Vincent, Kiss, Zach Brown, and Tima Likes Music. There's only one place for you to go to your band's business management. Go to vb-cpa.com when you're ready. And our thanks go to Christine Oive, a wealth manager at the Forefront Group, F-O-U-R, Christine has helped many professionals at the University of William Patterson and all over the world manage their investments. Plan after the retirement when you are thinking of building a bridge to your financial future. Think about the Forefront Group and go to Christine at Forefront.com. Please, please leave the last OI off for savings. Managing your band, 7th edition. It is out now and rocking and rolling, doing both things. And meanwhile, <clears throat> Billboard Magazine has ranked the William Patterson University Music Business Program once again as one of the best in the United States of America. All of that out of the way. And now we come to Sarah Barnett. All right. Here was Sarah Barnett. And it's Barnett, correct? It's not Barnett or Barney or anything like that. No, just Barnett. Barnett, GM Mm -hmm. of Brooklyn Bowl, Nashville. And why don't we start, first of all, Sarah, there, there is not much that I could find about you specifically on the web. You're not on the LinkedIn machine. I did find you and stalked you. It was not the professional way one does on LinkedIn, uh, but I did stalk you for a moment on Instagram. I found okay. you. There. But right. can we just start there? There's You're not on LinkedIn. As somebody who is a GM at a pretty cool place, pretty cool position, have you not real thought that you needed it? Uh, could you just give us that? Because in a lot of stuff, and I'm sorry, it was a four-hour question. I, I talk a lot to students about using LinkedIn and the power of it and the networking, but you're not using it or have not been. So can you kind of give us your perspective on that? Uh, I have used it in the past and I was using it when I got this job and the, actually the CPO of Brooklyn Bull reached out to me through LinkedIn. Um, but that's not how she found me. She just, somebody that I had worked with previously told her. And so she stalked me that way and found me mm-hmm. that way. 
Um, I'm not saying don't use it, but I, and I need to be better at networking. Like that's definitely a weakness of mine. Um, and a social media is another thing that I need to improve on as well. Um, so I would say, yeah, definitely, um, do something like that, but there's more, um, apps that are coming around now. Like there's a lineable and there's just so many things, but right now I'm happy and I'm not looking to move to another job or, you know, be scouted. Um, so I think that's why I was just like, well, this is a lot to keep up with right now. I think I'm just going to pause for a minute, but that doesn't mean I won't ever be back. Um, yeah, so I will be back there, but no, that's good. I mean, I, to me, it, it's, it served its purpose for you <laughs> right now. You don't think you need it. So you, like you said, you pause it. You know, a lot of people do that with social media, you know, whether it's Ed Sheeran or I was reading something about Taylor Swift after in 2014, after whatever record came out, 1989, maybe um, she took a break from everything for a while. So it's fine. You know, it's, it's cool. It's interesting to Thank hear you. you say that because um, <laughs> now you mentioned when you got the gig, um, mm -hmm. I think you mentioned the CPO. Is that what you said? Yes. What is a CPO? Chief Personnel Officer was her uh, okay. title at the time. It has since changed. Okay. Um, meaning the person has changed or the title has changed? The title has changed. What her is the title? Has changed. Oh my gosh. Don't set, don't test me on that because she's going to hear this. Chief Operations. Okay. I like believe now. Maybe COO. I guess, yes. which, okay, which uh, is one letter before the P. So it's almost a demotion. If you think <laughs> but that's, that's interesting. So what were you doing before you were general manager of Brooklyn Bowl Nashville? Okay. So my um, background is in hospitality. I come from bars and restaurants. Uh, this is actually the first restaurant venue, like full, like music venue that I have managed. Um, before this, I was at a little restaurant called Butcher Town Hall, uh, right down the street in Germantown, Nashville, and I was the, the GM there. But uh, ultimately, I have bars, restaurants. I worked at Acme downtown for a little bit. I think that's where I got most of my experience because it is such a large place. We did do concerts um, on one of the floors, and it's like a honky-tonk. So that's how I, I got that experience, and, and they they... Fortunately, somebody thought that I could do this job. And and so that's that's it. That's the rest cool. is history. Well, well it's interesting because you mentioned Acme. So mm -hmm. where I am in New Jersey, Acme is a supermarket chain. So mm -hmm. where you are, Acme is a restaurant venue. Honky Tonk venue. Yeah. It's downtown on Broadway. It's one of those four-story places with a rooftop. If you've ever go to Broadway on Nashville, yeah. in Nashville, it's like, it's one of the one of the places, you know, to go. Right. So you mentioned you need to do better at networking yet sort of through networking. Is that how you got this gig? Mm -hmm. Yeah. I was fortunate enough to work with a really, very, very nice um, woman at Acme. And she had previously worked at Brooklyn Bowl in Williamsburg as a manager there. So we were co-workers. And I suppose when they were um, getting ready to open this location in Nashville, they knew that she lived here in Nashville and reached out to her and said, is there anybody that you know? And uh, like she mentioned my name, which I can never thank her enough for doing that. Um, I wasn't even looking to switch. Mm -hmm. I was I was happy where I was and and I got a call out of the blue and and it just it was meant to be. 
Oh, that's great. So did you go to college for hospitality? Did you go to college? And if you did, was it in hospitality or was it like political science or animal husbandry or? Well, Dave, I'm so sorry to say I did go to college, but not because I wanted to. I just felt mm -hmm. like I was obligated to mm -hmm. um, and definitely had that pressure to do something. So it was like community college a couple different times. And I just did like general studies because I really didn't know what I wanted to do with my life. Um, and then turns out I'm really, really good at restaurants and bars and and multitasking and hospitality. And I was just like, it came natural to me because I would, I got a job working in a restaurant and then it just, it was like, okay, this is it. Like, this is what I'm going to do. Um, even though at the time, 20 years ago, there was definitely a stigma attached to being a server or a bartender. Fortunately, that's not the case anymore. Um, but that's, that's what happened. I was just so good at it. And I just kept moving up the ranks, you know, as long, along the way. No, I think that's really important to state because like I have a daughter who goes to college, she's a sophomore and she still has no idea what she wants to do. And my wife and I say, do whatever you, you know, you could even take a gap year. You could do whatever you want. You know, it's, it's, it's hard. And there are a lot of kids, you know, if you think about it, you live to be, we'll both live to be 125, Of course. <laughs> but um, so we're nowhere close to uh, midlife, but you know, if you're 18, 19 and you're, uh, this burden is on you to pick what you want to do and study and spend hundred thousand dollars or more on to focus on to affect the rest of your life. That's that's kind of a heavy burden take on. It's on a lot of pressure. Yeah. yeah. So so just um you were going to college and you just got what just like a side just a a, a gig just being a server at a right. at a restaurant or something. Place called Uncle Bud's. All you can eat catfish and chicken. Uh, it's the kind of place where the guests would sit down at the table and we bring them a bowl of beans and a bowl of coleslaw and some hush puppies immediately. Mm -hmm. uh, and it was it was great. That's where I started in hospitality. How did you go? Because I actually work with um, not sorry. I, I have a student who I was actually speaking with the other day who works at a cheesecake factory. Mm -hmm. And for her, she has this issue where she wants to get an internship, but an internship will either pay nothing or pay maybe $15, $17 an hour. As a server at the Cheesecake Factory, she's making, after tips and everything, more than $30 an hour. So she's really torn between giving up, you know, that up and going into debt for school, for example, to do this other, uh, to maybe get an internship doing something else. Um, your path at what, at what point were you like immediately, I just, I just love this. And how did you work your way up from being a server to ultimately being a GM where you are now? What were the steps, the different levels? Well, I was funny because, because I was working at Cheesecake Factory oh. <laughs> and I was a server there and a bartender and making great money. And I got the schedule that I wanted. I had a kid, I do still have a kid, but mm -hmm. I had a young child at the time. And so it was trying to work around daycare and work. And so I just kind of made do and I was making great money. Well, a former boss of mine, he was opening, he was working for Acme. They were opening a new place and he reached out of the blue and said, Hey, um, I think that you would be really great as a like shift leader, sort of like floor manager slash bartender. 
And he kind of just said, I'll, you know, I'll let you get whatever schedule you want, you know, as a bartender, you can work Friday and Saturday nights. And then I, but I also want you to manage the floor. And so I kind of just made that choice. I, I considered it and I thought, all right, well, this is going to be a lot of work. This is opening up a new place, but and I knew that I wanted to be a manager eventually. And I, and I thought about doing it at Cheesecake Factory, but their management training was like three or four months and you have to go away and train for that whole 90 days somewhere else across the country. And I was not ready for that kind of commitment, but that's just, this just seemed easy. I was like, okay, you're just going to make me a manager with no experience and I don't have to go where, anywhere to train. And that's what happened. I knew that it was going to be a different um, pace, different money. And it was, I, I took a pay cut and I was working six days a week. And I just kept telling myself, this is for the better. If I do this, it will pay off. Mm-hmm. And, and it did eventually. Uh, I did that for two years where I was working six days a week, like Monday through Saturday. I didn't see my kid a whole lot because I was always, always working, but I just kept that in my mind. Like this is for, this is for your kid. This is because, you know, someday you are going to be the GM or you're going to be in a place where you can make your own schedule and it's, it, this is going to work out. And, and it did. Well, okay. So then you went to, uh, well, you got, kind of chosen to come over and you obviously interviewed and all that, but now you're general manager at Brooklyn Bowl Nashville. Explain to everybody what Brooklyn Bowl is, and then we'll get into exactly what a general manager of a venue like this does. Well, Brooklyn Bowl is different than any other music venue because there's a lot going on. It's kind of the whole experience for for our patrons where instead of going um, for dinner before you come to a show, you can come here for dinner. Then we have 19 bowling lanes with full service, uh, full menu on those bowling lanes, uh, as well as the restaurants, full service, uh, full menu with really, really good, like elevated bar food, uh, really delicious fried chicken. Uh, And then we have four bars. So it's really, it's the whole night. Like we want people to come in, have dinner with us, you know, hang out, uh, play a few games of uh, bowling. And then once the show's over, they can stay and have a few drinks and like hang out with their friends more if they don't feel like going home. So it is the whole experience. And I like Brooklyn Bowl. It's like I said, it's different than any other music venue for sure. Yeah. Are there many others like that? Like in New Jersey, there's Asbury Lanes, which Mm -hmm. is a, I think that might be a Live Nation affiliated venue. You guys are independent, correct? Yes, we're a joint venture with Live Nation. Oh, you are? Okay. Mm-hmm. Okay. So, yes, go on. Sorry. I think there's a like Rock and Bowl in New Orleans as well. Mm-hmm. So it's like a, a bowling alley where they have a stage. So it started as a bowling alley and then they kind of threw the music element into it. And that might have been the inspiration for Brooklyn Bowl. Mm-hmm. But I don't want to speculate because I it wasn't my creation. But uh, Charlie Ryan and Pete Shapiro are the co-owners and they had this great idea to open Brooklyn Bowl in Williamsburg, Brooklyn in 2014, I believe. I think so. 20... <laughs> uh, I'm going to feel terrible if I get this wrong. 
no, it was 2009 was when that one opened. Then um, it was going really well. And, and Williamsburg was like up and coming at the time. So they got in, they got in at the right time. Then they opened the Vegas location in 2014. So that one happened as well. Then we were the third location. We are scheduled to open March, 2020. There was a little bit of a delay on that. And we officially opened July, 2021. Same year that fall, our Philadelphia location opened for mm -hmm. Berlin Ball. So there are four locations. We are definitely expanding, hoping to uh, be in Washington, DC next, should be the next location. Okay. So that'll be a couple of years. And London, there was a London location, but that closed mm -hmm. down. Was that did that close down during COVID, or that was? It was before. Yeah. It was it was short, short lived. Mm -hmm. That I would think that would be hard, just because everybody else is here, and then you have this one venue over there, and it's a completely different clientele and culture, and you know they speak English, but beyond that, it's it's not the same as the United States. So I would think it would be tougher. Yeah, I think that's what happened. Mm, interesting. Right. Okay. Um, so uh, there was that lag between when you were scheduled to open and when you did, because there mm -hmm. was this thing called uh, coronavirus, which, mm -hmm. which came. And were you hired? Were you there during that whole period? Uh, at what point did you join when the place was still, was it being, I guess when you joined, was it still being built out and modeled? Yeah. And you go through that process. When I joined, it was uh, November, 2019. And we were scheduled to open March 2020. So I came on board. The talent buyer was already here, Colin Keegan. Uh, then we hired our HR manager. And so slowly we started building our team, our, our, our management team from there. You know, because it took a couple months to interview everyone and try to get most people on by January 2020. So that's what we were doing for January and then February, getting ready to open this brand new venue, hiring hourly employees, training those hourly employees. We also uh, were hit by a tornado in March oh, yeah. of 2020 in the area. And that kind of shut down the, the city. Um, it affected a lot of people. Uh, fortunately, Brooklyn Bowl was was not damaged in any way, but, but we did have a lot of staff that, that were affected and lost power. So that delayed training. Uh, and then, yeah, <laughs> and then construction was still happening uh, the day before we were scheduled to open. We had this grand opening party that was scheduled for March 13th, the Friday, the 13th. And we had opened, we had invited like 3000 people to this grand opening party. Well, our capacity is 1,200 people. So we over-invited. We mm -hmm. hadn't used any of our POS systems yet. We we really hadn't had that much practice because the training again was delayed. So it was like a, the Thursday before that Friday we were going to open. I called my um, couple of my management team into a room and we were like, okay guys, so there's this thing going around mm -hmm. called COVID coronavirus. Um, and I think it's kind of serious. And also like construction is still happening a little bit in the building like we can make do but it's going to be pretty hectic and we talked about it and we decided we should delay the opening and that was definitely the right call for sure because then 
we did and open again for a long time. Yeah. Um, then how did you guys survive? Because uh, are you guys part of NEVA, the National Independent Venue Association, or you're not because of the Live Nation joint venture? Exactly. So we are not. We are not a part of that. But we are lucky to be a joint venture with Live Nation at the time. I unfortunately did have to furlough um, almost everyone, kept on our box office manager and our talent buyer because we were busy postponing shows um, during that time. So I was the janitor, the um, operations manager, whatever whatever needed to be done. I was that that person at that time. But I mean, we all pitched in to help out where we could. Um, and we pivoted to doing live streams. Pete Shapiro, the co-owner had this great idea. He was like, well, let's just rent out the venue and we can just, we have really, really, we already have like the sound and lights. We already have the, the infrastructure to do video and live streams. So let's just do that. And that's what we did. And we had Jason Isbell and Amanda Shires. We had Illiterate Light. We did like so many amazing artists during that time. And, and when that happened, it was really great because I was able to bring back like our production manager and our production crew that we had, we had hired in the very beginning that never got to work for us. But when that happened, I could, I could bring them back. And so it was like, okay, like we're surviving, you know, I am like helping some people work, you know, not as many as I would like, but this is, it's working out. And, and, and I think it like helped, you know, get us on the map before we were even open. So how was the venue making money during the live streaming era? <laughs> we, we weren't, we were just breaking even mm -hmm. um, to do these. Uh, we did rent it out a couple of times for to, to do commercials or videos or, or whatever. So, but really we were just kind of taking whatever we could get, you know, to cover our labor cost. Um, and just to to do that so it wasn't we weren't turning a huge profit by any means but it was really just to just to keep us going keep the lights on talk about in general from a venue perspective if let's say i'm i'm a i'm a drummer in a band and i'm you know i want to get a gig there um and i'm thinking i can sell we can sell a lot of tickets um do you care as much about the tickets or do you care about the people who buy the tickets are going to buy alcohol I I know it seems like music venues make a, a huge profit and a ton of money, but we really don't see a lot of revenue from the tickets. That's um, generally going, that's going elsewhere. So we really, really depend on food and beverage sales to make, to make a profit. That's where we get our revenue is food and beverage. And especially like for us with our restaurant and bowling lanes, that's where, that's where we make our money. Do you make more money from food or from liquid refreshment? Liquid, for yes. sure. What is the for difference sure. in, in margin between like like food and I know alcohol, <laughs> it's like it, way crazy high, but is it is food much closer to cost? Yeah, that's way closer. I, I mean, way closer. I would say like you can't, well, it just depends. And, and I let my um, kitchen manager Fortunately, make those decisions, but yeah, it's um, can't mark it up as as high for food, but the most of the money is going to be made on liquor for mm -hmm. sure. Well, that's a, that's a, a good question because in the business we always talk about ticket prices, but talk about how 
who comes up with the price of the food? Is that in conjunction with you? You mentioned a uh, kitchen manager. Mm -hmm. um, who has the spreadsheets and who's looking at this and determining the margin and what we think we can get and how elastic is that, et cetera? Uh, he makes those decisions, but we also look at the, the our neighbors and we also look at the other venues around us if they're doing something comparable like serving food, but we definitely look at the market um to compare but we are in a weird place because you know we're not downtown here at brooklyn bowl we're kind of adjacent to town downtown so we can't compare ourselves to um a business on broadway but we also can't compare ourselves to the like the neighborhood bar right next door so it's just trying to find that happy medium where like and can be competitive too so we want folks are coming here and we we sell fried chicken and and huge platters of it um but you also have to take into account labor that goes into that because we cut the chicken by hand mm -hmm. and so there's somebody back there prepping it every day and we do it fresh every two days um there's a lot of factors that you have to um have to consider when making those prices and and then just trying to to turn a profit while also being competitive interesting it's cool because I'm just picturing the spreadsheet in my head of <laughs> the, the cost. Let's say it's a chicken dinner, um, mm -hmm. which would be, let's say, chicken gravy. Um, what would come in it? Chicken gravy? Is it a la carte? Yeah, mashed potatoes and gravy, collard okay. greens, fried okay. chicken. Mm -hmm. So we know that the collard greens, the however much you put on a plate, costs X. That the, uh, the gravy costs X. The uh, mashed potatoes cost this. The chicken costs this. That's just the wholesale cost, I guess. And then you build in the cost of the person who's doing that. Then you build mm -hmm. in the cost, my, my guess would be, of somebody's serving it out in the restaurant. Um, and they're, uh, I'm trying to think what other, but that's interesting. And then you have your, whatever margin you're trying to build in, whether it's 8% or 13% or whatever that is. And then looking and see that price, is that competitive, like you said, for where you are, because it's different from a restaurant business also, because Taylor Swift can price her ticket generally anywhere in the country, <laughs> whatever she wants, you know, right. but for a restaurant, um, when they say location, 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 where you are now, maybe you can't price the chicken dinner the same as, like you said, as on Broadway, just because you don't have the foot traffic and mm -hmm. you need them. And so is that kind of how the thinking goes? Yeah, absolutely. And I've seen establishments open and I think like mom and pop places where they don't probably don't have as much experience and they'll just, you know, say, oh, I'm going to open up my own restaurant and they price their food like outrageously, you know, and they think, oh, well, this is great. People are just going to come in and they'll just pay this and then we'll, we'll be fine. We'll make money. But you can't start that way because me as a patron, I would look at that pricing and say, this is ridiculous. I know that they're, you know, just starting out, but I'm not even going, like, I'm never going to even try it if it's this. So it's, it's really like having to find that balance between yes, that profit margin, but also getting people to even experience it, you know, cause they want to pay those prices. And uh, <laughs> and it's like different for us too because we're not a, a straight up music venue and we're not a straight up restaurant and we're not a bowling alley with like nachos and you know 
the frozen pizza. It's so it is trying to find that perfect, that perfect balance. Like I said, it's interesting because I used to be in radio advertising sales for this rock and roll radio station, and we would do promotions with restaurants. And I realized pretty soon that while the restaurants would have great food, what it seemed like in none of these restaurateurs ever went to took any business classes because they would have the best food and they would mm -hmm. be the reason they would go out of business is they had no idea how to run a business. And maybe the stuff we're talking about is stuff that they never necessarily broke down to the nitty gritty part of it. Instead, they just kind of through pricing, yeah. kind of seat of seat of the pants kind of menu pricing. Mm -hmm. They have big dreams. They just they just say, OK, well, this is we'll make a 15 percent profit on this uh, dinner and then that's it. And I think places with that, too, are, are like having kind um, staff as well. That's a really big thing, too, when you open up a place and you're you're wanting to be successful. And that's there's so many different like pieces that need to be there in order to be successful. Right. So one of the things when we we're talking about the revenue streams and, and such, one of the things that came out just a couple of weeks ago is Live Nation made this announcement that uh, what some people know, some people may not know, is when a band plays a venue and they sell their merch, uh, many times a venue will take a percentage of that mm -hmm. as a venue fee, which is used to run the venue, things like that. And yeah. uh, Live Nation just announced that they were going to, is it cut altogether or significantly diminish those uh, those fees? They don't take any anything. They don't take a cut at all. Okay. That's um, so what those Live Nation owned and operated venues are. So, but what we do and what a lot of those venues do, they take 15% of soft, which is t shirts and stickers and stuff like that. Hard is what we call it, is records. And usually, like, we don't take any cut for records or tapes or CDs or anything like that. Nothing on hard, 15% on soft. Um, but what we do too is we take a cut of, or we have to do taxes. So we have to submit the taxes for anything that's sold and on our premises. Um, and I'm not sure if they're they're still doing that. I mean, I think that's a statewide thing. So maybe the venues in Tennessee are still doing that. The Live Nation owned and operated venues. But yeah, so instead of taking that 15% cut, they're just waiving it completely and letting the band keep all of it. Right. And then it's up to the band to pay any taxes mm -hmm. they may decide yeah. or not decide to pay. Yes. Okay. Well, that's good. <laughs> that's great. That's great uh, for many. Although I did see this is not a political thing. I just saw Neva, the, uh, which I brought up for the National Independent Venue Association, uh, complained about this the other day, stating that it's anti-competitive, basically, because generally they said they can't afford to not take that. Yeah. Because um, they needed to for the venues to run, which is an interesting perspective. Again, it's um, if I'm with a band, I'm like, I love that you're not taking it. That's more money for the band. But you also their thinking is we need a vibrant, healthy, lower uh, cap room space in this country. And if the 500 cap, 1000 cap room can't uh, get that extra revenue stream, they may go out of business. Therefore, there will be no fewer places for bands to play. Yeah, I mean, it, that kind of makes sense. There are a lot of shows where 
when we have, when the band sells a lot, a lot of merch, we don't really sell a lot of alcohol or food. Um, we found a correlation in that. And so that's kind of where it like, where it evens out for us. We're like, okay, we know that tonight's not going to be a good F and B night, but we know they're going to sell a ton of merch and there's going to be a line at that merch table on that long. And that's how we maybe make a little bit of extra money that we wouldn't have other otherwise made. Because so, you are, yeah. Because you because you are still taking a percentage. Yeah, as okay. a joint venture, we are not an owned and operated uh, Live Nation mm -hmm. venue. So as a joint venture, yes, we're we're still taking a cut. And what was the cut? Did you say fifteen percent? Fifteen on okay. soft. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Okay, and zero on hard. And again, soft goods, hard goods. Um, sometimes you'll get uh, a band will get a contract, and it'll say hundred percent merch, which means the band gets everything, or it'll say um, hundred percent hard goods. 85% soft goods. And that means right. exactly what you just said, 15% right. for the venue. Yeah. Um, let's say uh, I'm your buyer. I'm, I'm the talent buyer working under you. And I come to you and I say, I want to book this band. Um, I think I kind of already asked this question, but it's too late. I'm already halfway down. Um, <laughs> am I going to you if it's a choice between, I think they're going to sell a lot of tickets and it's good going to be good for us to get a lot of people in the door, but it's not going to be, you said F and B food and beverage. It's not going to be a good F and B night. Where is the sort of the line that you're looking at of, yeah, let's book them anyway. But if it's like it was, maybe we don't have them come back because we do need to hit this nut. Or do you look at it from your perspective at a whole week or a whole month and say a couple months or kind of like lost leaders will get them in. We won't make the money that, night but it gets people in here and they get into the habit of coming in here do you look at it like that can you kind of explain yeah. your thinking there yeah i think it's a big picture because right not every show is going to be super successful in our eyes but that doesn't mean that it's not going to be packed with people um and a lot of times those sell those shows sell out very quickly and those artists too we're really lucky that we get bands and artists that move on to amphitheaters next and and so it's really you're just kind of it's the long game um but it also like it'll even out the next day or the next week we'll have a different band a different artist um so it's really just being able to do all of those it's it's i'm happy to do that and i think we all are really just because it is going to help us in the long run but it also looks the agents look at that too and the end and, and I'm not privy to these, you know, deals and I'm not talking to agents. Um, fortunately, I am so glad I'm not a talent buyer. Um, nothing against agents, but I, I couldn't do it. Um, but you just have to like, okay, well, we booked this band this night. So now I want this band, you know, to come back. And so it's sort of, I think those are the deals that they're, they're making. Mm -hmm. Yeah, essentially, because I've I've seen deals in which a band, like we just talked about, it has sold out and done great at the uh, at the bar. And then they've mm -hmm. come back, sold out. They did not do well at the bar that night. And then the bar owner gets or the venue owner gets nervous. Uh, and and maybe there's things called like a bar minimum. Can you, do you know what a bar minimum is? Can you explain what that is? Yeah, so we don't we don't do those for a regular promoted shows maybe for a, a special event we might do that or tr like a four wall but uh bar minimum is that we would you know if this were a successful show we're going to make 
I don't know, $20,000 uh, in a night, right? So that would be our minimum. It's like, okay, well, if we don't make $20,000 in ticket sales and the bar, then we are, you guys are going to make up this difference for us. But we don't, we don't usually do that for promoted shows. It's really just kind of like, hopefully the talent buyer is skilled enough where they can make a deal where they know it's, you know, it's not going to be the best in FMB, but what, what we'll do for your uh, artist guarantee is we're kind of switch it up a little bit so that the venue will make some on those ticket sales. Mm -hmm. And Hopefully the type of, I'm sorry, I interrupted. That was no, that's okay disrespectful yeah. <laughs> and you deserve so much respect and i i apologize like if we were in a room together you you would have the right to punch me in the throat no. <laughs> but um the the deals that you guys offer when you're talking to agents or maybe it's not every time it's an agent maybe sometimes it is you know that one independent promoter or something who wants to you mentioned the term first can you mention you said four wall and explain what four walling mm -hmm. is it's when a, a promoter or another outside um company comes comes in and they it's kind of their room for the night uh where we do that i would say you know once every couple of months where we will have it's really not that often maybe like two times in six months um and yeah so a promoter will come in and they say okay we have uh this dance party that we want to do and this is our company and we just want you know your venue so we do do that. We have a dance party called Nashville's. We do it almost on like a monthly basis. Our next one is going to be Saturday, the 28th of October. And they're great because they bring their own clientele. So mm -hmm. they bring their own patrons. They're already established. Everyone already knows them. And they hire the DJs and, and the artists to perform. And really, they're just basically renting out our venue for the night. That's right. And so For you that. earn revenue from the promoter because they're giving you a guarantee, basically a guarantee or a flat fee. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And the promoter is, I'm assuming, not getting any of the bar. So that's why you exist is to for that. But the promoter is hoping, okay, we'll spend whatever it costs to get there. But the price of the tickets, we will get X percentage of that so that we make 10%, 15% or whatever of it. So yeah, it's a tough business. I mean, people don't think about the promoters, but the independent promoter doing something like that. Um, the more successful the act is that's booking the room, the higher percentage of the ticket they're going to want. So it gets the margin for the promoter. In that case, we were talking about margin on food, margin on alcohol, margin on just booking talent in that case is that much smaller. So it's a tough business to get into. You have to be flexible. It's mm -hmm. and it's learning and, and, you know, thinking, well, last time we had something similar and and it's really just, there's no black and white. There's no like, okay, this is clearly what we need to do. It's it's really just adapting and kind of just taking what we learned from from another show or another artist or another promoter or, and, and really just being flexible and changing. Right. Yeah. But in general, you guys are dealing directly with agents, not so much promoters, correct? Correct. Yes. And your talent buyer reports directly to you. Well, mm -hmm. uh, we have. <laughs> it's a little. We're in a little weird uh, a situation right now where we have talent buyers that work for Live Nation, that book uh, for a lot of our shows for us. But we do have an internal talent buyer. His name is Rick Poss. Um, he's also an operations manager, 
and he's wonderful and truly truly cares about music and and nashville and local artists and he's just such a good guy he's the kind of person that like if you send him an email saying you want to play a show he will listen to the music that you sent him Mm -hmm. and then keep you on a list and and will remember you the next time that something comes up where he's like okay i need somebody that uh does like you know latin rock or something and then he'll he'll have that person in mind um but so right now we don't have one talent buyer it is there's a few there's like four right now that are booking the room for us but it works out because our calendar is very full yeah i mean they're 365 nights in a year so if, if rick, <laughs> would rick be would it be like a shared google doc that rick and <clears throat> excuse me the various people who can book mm-hmm. who have that basically let's say i work for live nation and you would be one of my accounts within the company um who I'm booking with. So Rick, me, you, one other person, we're all, the four of us are all booking. So we share this and we can look at the dates. We could see, can you get into um, holds and challenging holds and what that means and how that works in your venue? Sure. Yeah. And it, it's really important that we use that calendar um, and update it because yes, you can look at a, a date uh, six months from now, a year from now, and you can see eight or 10 holds. So what a hold is, is the talent buyer talks to the agent and says, okay, like we could do around this date to March, you know, 3rd through March 15th, 2024, if you want to go ahead and put holds on those dates, because they don't have it exactly narrowed down yet, like exactly what date they want. So they're going to put various days on there. And then as we get closer to the dates or, or more information becomes available to really all the parties then you would say all right let's like narrow it down we're gonna do March 7th um how does that work how does that work for y'all can we do March 7th and that is when the talent buyer will talk to we have a sales department here also so we have events private events that we do they'll talk to each other talk to the agent okay we really want to narrow it down to like March 7th is that going to be okay and really it's the highest bidder kind of wins at that point. So if the talent buyer goes to our department, uh, director of sales, and she has a big event plan and it's going to make us a ton of money, well, she might win that hold. And then they would look at another date to book that artist. But if she doesn't have anything, or maybe it's not going to be as um, profitable or just, you know, as is what we need for the venue, then um, that uh, that will that will win. Like the, the talent buyer will get that date, and then that's that's how they do. They have to like follow that calendar very closely, though, and make sure they have those holds on there. It's a lot of a lot of um, organizational skills that are like really important to have. You ever bump anybody because, for example, the sales department just got an offer. You, it's just this is so amazing, Sarah. We got to bump Jason Isbell. Uh, I can't think of any right now. Any examples? It's mm, uh, good. To, <laughs> no, <laughs> uh, and we we're fortunate enough that we we book really really cool bands. But ultimately, like if like I said, we make our money on FMB, so we're definitely going to make more money on private events than we would on a show. But being able to figure out how to do both 
is really like what we're always striving to do. Which goes back to that whole balance of the mm -hmm. week, month, year long, again, balance sheet or spreadsheet and looking at the, the mix of private events, promoter events, you know, uh, booking, you know, bookings of bands and DJ nights and Taylor Swift nights and all that kind of stuff. Um, so let's see. So that was you opened in 2021. So you've been open for about two full years. Are we at two full years yet? Yeah, over two full years. Okay. Um, how far out are you booking? Like, let's say my agent at Wasserman came to you and said, we want to book my artist. Her name is Tima Likes Music. We want to book Tima Likes Music for this 90s R&B night. What? <laughs> I love her. She's so great. Tima Likes Music? Tima Likes Music? You've heard yeah. of her? No kidding. Yeah. Really? This is very <laughs> I follow her on TikTok. That is hysterical. That is very funny because I manage her. <laughs> and um, that that's, wow. Hey, uh, those who are listening. I'm a big listen. fan. Wow, that's really cool. Um, well, there's an example of, because right now we're actually, we have a Southeast tour. We have a Northeast tour that we're booking for December. Suppose the agent said, we're looking to come to Nashville. Right now, I think your room actually is probably a bit, little too big. But let's say she came to you and she said, um, we're looking at April. And right now, this is Rocktober 18th that we're doing this interview. Make sure, by the way, in the future, when you talk about this month, it's Rocktober um, that is a national thing put together by um, both Republicans and Democrats. So there's no split there. Um, so it's Rocktober. But uh, in that case, how far ahead are you are you booking these types of things? Uh, April for sure. So yes, that is not far out at all. We have um, things on the books in 2025 mm -hmm. and the early 2025. Um, yeah. So April is like, that's nothing no time um right that's but yeah so that's like you're late for april <laughs> at this point right 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 um but yeah you look rocktober fills up first november next we're going to be busy in september's so i think those dates are always going to fill up first and then i think maybe they they fill in the dates around those you know mm-hmm do you guys go out, let's say it's, uh, there are a couple nights, I was looking at your calendar, like uh, there was a Monday in, I think it's this month that you're closed. Um, are you closed just because you just want to give everybody a mental health day? Is it that kind of thing? Or it's yeah. a, okay. We're tired. And when we first were talking about opening and back in 2020, and then again in 2021, I really had this vision that we were going to be the neighborhood restaurant and bar, even if we didn't have shows. Well, we're still trying to get over that hurdle of like educating people that we are a restaurant and we are a bar, but we've, we're so busy right now. There's just really having shows. I'm looking at the calendar in front of me and we have seven shows this week. We had seven shows last week. We have uh, six events the week after, or actually seven shows the week after, two of which are in one day and we're tired and we need a break. And instead of like opening the restaurant when we don't have a show and maybe a couple of people will, will come in, we've just decided, you know, if it's a Sunday, Monday or Tuesday and we don't have a show, we're just going to close. And my bosses are okay with that and my staff are okay with that. So I think we're, that's what we need, you know? Yeah. So what is the goal? How many uh, days a year do you 
is the perfect number to be open? I think 200 shows is, is still mm -hmm. quite a bit in 360 out of 365 days. And it's definitely seasonal. We're right now we are in the midst of it. I mean, it is Rocktober, right? Mm -hmm. So, but January is going to come around and it's really going to be much quieter. We're going to do a lot more DJ nights, uh, more local shows, um, and then it'll ramp back up in March and April. And then there's a lull again in July and August. So it's very, very seasonal. And then we just, there's no way we could be open. Even 250 is going to be a lot. Like we would be on, we would get awards for having 250 shows in a year. Right. And what's um, musically, I know Nashville and people in Nashville want it to be clear. It's not just country music. It's <laughs> it's music city overall. Uh, is there a genre that works best for Brooklyn Bowl in Nashville? Uh, I don't think so. Mm -hmm. I don't think so. We try to be diverse. I am definitely partial to indie rock mm -hmm. and, and like punk rock, but we, no, it's us. We, we like rock shows, like more like classic rock shows, because it seems like everyone comes in, they make a, a huge deal of this. They'll get hotel rooms for the night and they'll come in from like all over uh, just to see, they just really, really get into it. Um, and they spend tons of money. So we really, really love our rock shows, mm -hmm. but no, um, like I said, that Nashville's event that we have almost monthly that with the promoter, it's that one's hip hop and it kills. Like we love those too. So no, I can't say that there's one perfect genre. Interesting. That. Cool. Now, talk about the experience from the band perspective, because we've talked about the consumer. We've talked about the buyer. Um, the band comes in, let's say it's a touring, touring act. Um, they're coming in. Can you uh, talk about what described the green room? And is there a washer and dryer, towels, all that kind of mm -hmm. stuff to make their stay pleasant? Yeah, we have uh, two green rooms uh, with a shower in each of those. So it's just, it's a, a nice comfy couch, you know, and they'll have a fridge in each green room and a TV and uh, try to keep the bathrooms nice and try to keep the green rooms vibey and clean um, so that people want to hang out while they're here. Uh, it's really, really important for us to take care of our artists, just like we would a, a ticket holder or a patient coming in off the street. We unfortunately do not have a washer and dryer. I think that was just something that was overlooked before we were open, but it's on the budget to happen next year. So we're mm -hmm. working on getting that done, but we really, really, really want them to feel welcome and comfortable and not just the artists themselves, but their crew too. So, because obviously they're going to have an input too. And they're, you know, if we're not nice to any of their crew, then that word will get around. So it is really, really important for us that we go above and beyond for, for our artists and, and make sure that they are, have everything that they could possibly want and need. Let's talk for a moment. Cause that's an industry point about being nice. Cause it goes both ways. Cause let's say, you know, we see the movies the, of rock and rollers and you always see um, the, the tour manager 
or the manager, you know, is a screamer, you know, and, and is getting in the face of people and maybe they have an English accent, maybe they don't, but <laughs> are you looking for, and even, and your talent buyer, and then I guess whomever, notice how I said whomever, that's because I'm a college mm-hmm. professor and I'm yeah, nice. forced to talk like that by law, but um, <laughs> whomever is dealing directly w- uh, from your perspective with the band, from your end, are you looking, we want to deal with nice people, if, if they're nasty, nasty people, sure, they might be a great night for the venue, but wow, there's just nobody likes dealing with that lead singer or that uh, person, uh, you know, that tour manager, and then you try and keep away from that. Does that happen? Um, yeah, it has happened mm-hmm. where I will report it back to the talent buyer and say, hey, like, let's uh, let the agent know and the manager that this 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 TM was like not nice to my staff and that's not cool. Or my staff felt uncomfortable um, with this person from the band and, and it will get back to them. Um, obviously we're not going to like, just like complain about every little thing because we get it. People are people. And sometimes we all have bad days, but for the most part, everyone's great anyway. So that almost never comes up, but yeah, we don't, we don't, we will be definitely treat you with respect, but we don't want anybody in here if they're not going to be cool to us, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, okay. Yeah. It's funny because we mentioned the washer and dryer mm-hmm. and I don't think people think about how important that could be because if they're staying in a hotel, for example, there's probably not a washer and dryer. And are you getting, have you had uh, explain, uh, do you guys employ runners and what runners do? And if, then have you ever had a runner had to do some band's laundry at a local laundromat? You know, that kind of thing. Because it gets sweaty after a night of playing on your stage. Yeah, we do have runners. I think for, we're at a different caliber, maybe a venue, because we are smaller. So maybe the expectations aren't there like they would be at like an amphitheater. But we, they go out and they go shopping for that artist so if an artist says that they want spindrift if is that a thing uh, that soda i might just be might have made that up if they want only starbucks coffee mm-hmm. uh then that runner will go out and get whatever they need and um yeah that's what the runner does we haven't had them do laundry yet but again i think it's just because we're just a little bit smaller so Fortunately, we haven't had uh, too many divas like come in expecting <laughs> us to, to wash their laundry for them. But uh, we are going to get the washer and dryer just so, you know, if it does come up, we'll be ready. That's right. And um, but the band should bring their own detergent just in case. <laughs> That's a good tour manager thing. So I have one final question because we're actually running against the the clock here for our great music is one one and more radio show. Uh, the venue, from what I've read, Brooklyn Bowl in Nashville, is across from where the Nashville Sounds music um, minor league baseball team plays. Is that kind of on purpose because uh, Major League Baseball is going to expand and there's probably um, going to be a Major League Baseball team in Nashville within the next five, six years? It, uh, could that potentially be a, a great opportunity for you because you'll have an even bigger audience maybe there at least before a giant stadium is built for them? Mm -hmm. That's a great question. I don't think that that was something that was considered when they were building this um, location because it is a new building and the Sounds baseball field is in our backyard. So we have a patio 
uh, that you can look, you can go and sit on and you have a perfect view to the game. So you can watch mm -hmm. the game. It's like, we're pretty much in the same backyard. Uh, I do think it'll help. I mean, I think anything that is going to come to this neighborhood is going to help us, uh, whether it's retail spaces or more restaurants or more bars. We're just excited to see the neighborhood grow in any sort of way. So yes, I think that would be amazing if it does and when and if, you know, we are a major league team. Can't wait. Hope to That's be here great. when that happens. Well, you just used the word amazing and that describes the interview that I just had with <laughs> Sarah Barnett. There's no H at the end of Sarah. Is that, was there a budgetary reason for that? Yeah, yeah, it was way too expensive. Yeah, it's because my last name is Philip, not Philip. Again, couldn't afford the I when they came over on the boat. So <laughs> that happens. So you probably don't know the answer to this question, but it's a very important question. At the end of every show, we say a certain word and we don't say hello. Do you have any idea what we would say at the end of every one of these music is one or one or more radio shows? Uh, thank you. Bye. We do say <laughs> bye, but not in English. We say, and you can say it with me, adios. All right, adios. <laughs> Wanna be your lover in every sexy kind of way